Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Love Talk Radio. everybody welcome to the show y'all welcome to the show so um today's show will not be 100 percent russia ukraine news i do have three segments on russia and ukraine that i'll get to uh well three like four nominally there's one that's like semi has to do with it uh but i also have joe biden's supreme court pick i'll tell you about her i have trump's incoherent babble that turned sexual at cpac um, <clears throat> I have uh, Mitt Romney unleashing on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, I have Texas cracking down on trans kids in a way that is genuinely disturbing and authoritarian. So it's not we're not just going to be limited to one topic today, but there still is quite a bit on that one topic. Clearly, I've been doing the breaking news relentlessly on that. Um, but yeah, without further ado, let's get started. And I want to kick it off with how uh, an angle of the Russia-Ukraine war that nobody's really talking about, but I think it's super important. So I've been trying to cover the uh, Russia-Ukraine war as much as possible. Um, I, you know, I did a number of breaking news segments on the important developments that I hope you guys have checked out. I, um, if you haven't, pause this video and go check those out, because I feel like all of that information is necessary in order to digest what I'm about to tell you now. So we've gone over the, the 
complexities of the conflict and the reasons for the conflict and, you know, the various claims from the different sides as to what's the key reason this is happening. But there's something that I, I definitely missed and overlooked that uh, I came across this weekend. So there's this video on a channel by the name of Real Life Lore. Real Life Lore. I, uh, I watch the channel every now and then. They have a video that catches my eye, and I'll take a look. But uh, they just released a video on February 26th entitled, Why Russia is Invading Ukraine. It's uh, about 32 minutes long, the video. But, man, it is the most detailed thing that I've seen yet on the topic. And I've seen a lot of stuff on the topic. And so before I show you this little clip, I'm going to really, really stress that you should check out that entire video, Why Russia is Invading Ukraine from Real Life Lore. I don't think there really is such thing as being apolitical. I think everything is political to one extent or another. But this is as close as I've ever seen to just a, a, a raw retelling of the facts of the situation that gets us to where we are now. So the thing that I overlooked in the conflict is honestly natural gas. And... Um, let me just go ahead and show you the clip now so you can see. Here's some of the backstory that's been missing from almost everybody's analysis. And this is actually interesting because it shows you maybe a parallel between George W. Bush's war in Iraq and Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Take a look. times when Russia and Ukraine were both one country. Pipelines were built across Ukraine almost like a bridge that transported gas directly from the Siberian sources to the customers in Europe. But then, all of a sudden, after the USSR's collapse, Ukraine was an independent country who was demanding tariffs to the tune of billions of dollars a year from Russia in order to continue using their country as a gas bridge to Europe. And Russia had no other choice but to agree, because the pipeline infrastructure anywhere else didn't yet exist. As late as 2005, 80% of Russia's gas exports heading to Europe were still flowing across pipelines through Ukraine. But in the decades since, Russia has sought to solve this over-reliance on Ukraine by building multiple new pipelines that avoid Ukraine entirely, like Yamal Europe across loyal Belarus. Nord Stream 1 and 2 beneath the Baltic that go directly from Russia to Germany, Moscow's largest single customer, along with South Stream, Blue Stream, and Turk Stream beneath the Black Sea. By 2024, Russia has plans to completely cease all of their gas exports through Ukraine entirely, and the government will save billions of dollars in tariffs as a result. But that is hardly what has been so threatening about Ukraine recently. Significantly more menacing to the perspective of Moscow was the discovery, for the first time in early 2012, that Ukraine's exclusive economic zone within the Black Sea may contain more than two trillion cubic meters worth of natural gas, largely concentrated around the Crimean Peninsula. To make matters even more interesting, further technological advancements in the early 2010s that enabled the successful drilling of natural gas and oil from shale rock unlocked the potential shale gas hotspots for Ukraine, Aradonetsk, and Kharkiv in the east and around the Carpathians in the west. Beginning in 2012, there was suddenly a very real possibility that almost out of nowhere, Ukraine had the world's 14th largest reserves of natural gas just behind Australia and Iraq. But as a relatively poor country, Ukraine lacks the finances, the technology, or the equipment to successfully harvest any of these resources in any large quantities. But that all changed when, shortly afterwards, the Ukrainian government began granting exploration and drilling rights to the likes of Shell and Exxon. It was suddenly possible that within a few years, these Western companies would enable Ukraine to transform into Europe's 
second Petra state, which would have not only been a direct and serious competitor to Russia's own gas supply to the European Union, and thus at the same time a major threat to the Russian government's budget and GDP, but would have also provided the easy path of eventual Ukrainian admission into the European Union and NATO as well. And this is what's really, in my opinion, what this whole situation is truly about. In 2012, at the time when these discoveries were initially made, the man in charge of Ukraine was Viktor Yanukovych, a pro-Russian politician who was keeping Ukraine more politically aligned with the interests of Moscow. So long as he was president, these discoveries were not directly threatening to Russia. But when suddenly in February 2014, his government was toppled in a pro-EU and pro-Western revolution in Kiev, Moscow was very quick to take the opportunity to invade some of Ukraine, seize the Crimean Peninsula, and annex it in the name of historical claims and protecting ethnic Russians. But by seizing Crimea, the Russians also took direct control of two-thirds of Ukraine's coastline and, by extension, the vast majority of Ukraine's maritime exclusive economic zone. And, most critically, an estimated 80% of Ukraine's potential offshore oil and gas reserves. So we now know that it's not just natural gas in the Crimean region. There's also giant natural gas deposits in eastern Ukraine and also in western Ukraine. You see where this is going? So when we used to talk about the war in Iraq, I think astute people from very early on were looking for what are the ulterior motives? Like what's, what's the real reason that we're in Iraq? Because the, the thing that we were told made no sense. It didn't add up. We were told Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Well, that turned out not to be true. And the implication was Saddam Hussein is a you know, direct threat to the United States of America. And if he has all the weapons of mass destruction, he might launch him on us at any second. That was just totally bogus. And so it was a war based on lies. We were even told early on that Saddam Hussein has connections to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. That is definitely not true. He was a secular Ba'athist leader. And of course, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda are sloppy jihadists. They're mortal enemies, in a sense. So they lie after lie after lie. Now, are there some people who probably drank the Kool-Aid and believed the propaganda from within the government? I'm sure there were. I'm sure. But uh, there were also people who probably knew this isn't really the truth, or it's certainly not the entire picture. So the real reason, uh, looking at it as an outsider and trying to be objective, we came to the conclusion that what's Iraq really about? Well, it's about imperial ambitions of the West. It's about uh, geostrategic control of a, a vital region in the world. We couldn't con control Saddam anymore. There was one time when he was a U.S. ally. He's no longer a U.S. ally. And, you know, he invaded Kuwait, and we thought this guy's a loose cannon. we got to get rid of him. And also, there's, you know, military-industrial complex profits, but oil was a big one. Oil was a big one. So now, look at how Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, and he gave an hour-long speech explaining exactly why he's doing it. Now, half of the speech was about the thing that we've always heard, which is the nominal defensive reason, which is, Hey, man, I told you guys, NATO, you can't expand to my border. That's an act of aggression on the West. How would you guys like it if we had, you know, weapons in Mexico and Canada pointed right at you and did military drills on the border? That's unacceptable. There's a direct threat to us. That's the nominal defensive reason that he gave. But the, half the, the other half of the speech was Vladimir Putin saying, look, Ukraine, we used to own you. You used to be ours. And really, you should still be ours. You owe a massive debt to us. We built you up. We shared a culture with you. You turned your back on us, and now you're working with the West, and that's unacceptable. So in a sense, Putin is admitting, I have imperial ambitions. I think the biggest mistake the Soviet Union made was being too lenient with these now post-Soviet states when we said, hey, you can leave if you want, no questions asked from the Soviet Union. That was a giant mistake. That was way too lenient. I wouldn't have given you that deal. 
This is the stuff that Putin's saying. So it's Russian imperial ambitions, uh, geostrategic control of a vital region, just like Iraq and the United States. Uh, he can't control Zelensky. He can't control a more Western-aligned government, whereas previously with Yanukovych, he could, because Yanukovych, Yanukovych was more aligned with Russia. But also, natural gas. He wants that natural gas. And so, look, this is a part of the conversation that I think everybody's missing. I've heard every reason under the sun as to why Vladimir Putin is doing this. Uh, you know, I myself have given every reason under the sun as to why he can be doing this. The nuance and the complexity, it's all important, and we should have a conversation about all the various factors that led to this point. Me personally, you guys know, I would have never expanded NATO in the first place. I think that that was provocative, and that does give him, at the very least, a cover story for his own imperial ambitions. So I never would have expanded NATO in the first place. And even if we didn't do that, and this is the main point, there's still a, a very high likelihood that Putin would be doing this because he wants that natural gas. He wants control of that region. And the other important point is, listen, even though it's perceived from Putin and Russia as NATO expansion is uh, aggressive, nobody ever really brings up the fact that in reality, NATO had no hope of overthrowing Putin. There was no way that you know, NATO would have launched an, launched an offensive attack against Vladimir Putin. Now, why do I say that? Because he has nuclear weapons. It would be absolutely psychotic for NATO or the United States or whoever to actually launch an aggressive offensive attack against Vladimir Putin. It's just not possible. The guy has nuclear weapons. So even though they perceive it as Western aggression, uh, that NATO expansion is that, and to an extent it is, also the ultimate thing that he, he's feigning concern over and fear over is not in the cards because no American leader is crazy enough, not Donald Trump, not George W. Bush, not Joe Biden or anybody, no American leader is crazy enough to try to aggressively overthrow a country that has a giant reserve of nuclear weapons. And nobody brings that point up. So look, this is a, a new piece of evidence that I think is really important. It's not really new evidence. It's just a light is being shined, uh, shined, shown, whatever it is on it in this phenomenal video. Again, I want to plug the video one more time. If you guys uh, don't watch it, you have no idea what you're missing. You have to watch this video. It is, it's very rare you find something discussing a political issue that is just like, top-tier objective, just as objective as humanly possible. Try to take out all opinion and just lay out all the facts and, you know, let the conclusions point in whatever direction they will based on the raw data. But that's what this is here. So real-life lore, L-O-R-E, uh, why Russia is invading Ukraine. Check it out. It's worth, you know, 31, 32 minutes of your time. Um, and you'll get a real sense of the entire picture. There absolutely were missteps from the West, uh, but... I really think it's kind of unavoidable, given the, the set of facts here, that at least the intention behind what Putin is doing is actually very similar to George W. Bush in Iraq. George w, George w. Bush in Iraq was all about imperial ambitions, geostrategic control of a vital region, the fact that we couldn't control Saddam, and it was about oil. Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine is about, he said it himself in half that speech, imperial ambitions, geostrategic control of a vital region, the fact that he can't control Yanukovych and a Western-aligned Ukrainian government, and natural gas. Okay. Let's continue. 
You guys are going to love this one. There's some really interesting signs that um, are happening right now in regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And some of this stuff, in a horrendous situation, some of these things are actually hopeful. So let me show you this. This is reported, reported in Reuters. Two of Russia's billionaires call for peace in Ukraine. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, two Russian billionaires, Mikhail Friedman and Oleg Depropaska, called for an end to the conflict triggered by President Vladimir Putin's assault on Ukraine, with Friedman calling it a tragedy for both our country's people. Billionaire Friedman, who was born in western Ukraine, told staff in a letter that the conflict was driving a wedge between the two eastern Slav peoples of Russia and Ukraine, who have been brothers for centuries. Quote, I was born in western Ukraine and lived there until I was 17. My parents are Ukrainian citizens uh, and live in Lviv, my favorite city. Friedman wrote in the letter, excerpts of which Reuters saw, but I have also spent much of my life as a citizen of Russia, building and growing businesses. I am deeply attached to the Ukrainian and Russian peoples and see the current conflict as a tragedy for, both, for them both. Russian billionaire Oleg Depropaska used a post on Telegram to call for peace, for peace talks to begin as fast as possible. So, my interpretation of this is that if two Russian billionaires, by the way, you could also probably use the word oligarch here, so two Russian oligarchs are publicly saying, hey man, not so sure about this. What that tells me is there are way more than two who really believe this and are just keeping quiet for obvious reasons. So if there's discontent among Russia's oligarchs, then there absolutely can be a splinter within. Um, and to the extent anybody could put pressure on Vladimir Putin, pressure being put on him like, hey, dog, I know why you're doing this, but www.wrapitup.org, because I'm sort of sick of this. So uh, we just got the news this morning that the sanctions are having a devastating toll on the Russian economy. The value of the ruble, the Russian currency, collapsed about 30%. Now, by the way, every number I'm giving you now is subject to change in a very short time span. So I might be telling you this now, and then by the time you watch it, it's, at, it's down 50%. Or it might be down 15% by the time I watch it. I don't know. It's a very fluid situation, obviously. But as of the time I'm talking to you right now, the ruble is down 30%. Um, Russia suspended their stock market. There are runs on Russia's banks, and now uh, allies are blocking Putin from about $600 billion in reserves, which is further making the economy contract. They also hit the Sovereign Wealth Fund and Russia's foreign ministry as well. So, look, if you're a billionaire, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> like, you hit the lotto, almost definitionally. And so... Since that's the case, yeah, you might, you know, have similar nationalist sentiments to what Vladimir Putin has, but you don't want to change stuff too much because that hurts your bottom line quite a bit. So clearly, they do not like this at all. And um, we'll see what happens. Honestly, the best hope is that there's some sort of pressure behind the scenes and some situation behind the scenes that changes the balance of power within Russia because... Uh, clearly, this, this has gone too far. And now, you know, we're getting more and more military updates about what's going on as well. There's some reporting that Russia is effectively surrounding Kyiv. I think when it was reported early on that that was happening, the mayor of, 
uh, Kiev, who, by the way, is one of the Klitschko brothers, one of the famous boxers, um, came out and said, actually, that's not true. They're not surrounding Kiev. But now, my understanding is that as of this morning, they do effectively have Kiev surrounded. So, look, I, I told you guys before, I'll tell you again, it's hard to predict anything with the fog of war, but Russia has overwhelming military might, and Ukraine is not nearly as powerful. So it really is just a matter of time until, um, you know, Kiev falls. New York Times says new satellite images show Russian ground forces, a convoy stretched out over more than three miles of road getting closer to Ukraine's capital, Kiev. The forces include infantry, fighting, and supply vehicles around 40 miles northwest of Kiev. Um, so I don't know, man. We'll see. The thing that's a terrifying thought to me, and again, watch all my other segments on this as well because they're all important, is that I don't see an off-ramp for Putin. I don't see an off-ramp for Putin. What sort of concession can be made by the West that would actually satiate him and have him be able to save face and turn around to the Russian public and say, I got what I wanted? Because the fact of the matter is, even before the invasion, you had Zelensky say, hey, man, Ukraine joining NATO is sort of a dream. And our bid has stalled. And so I don't really think we're going to be able to join NATO. So that is what Putin is really concerned about. And that's one of the things he says he's most concerned about. It's like, all right, dog, take your W and go home. But he didn't take his W and he didn't go home. So what now? I mean, one of the things he's arguing for is, well, you need to totally now demilitarize Ukraine. Look, it's one thing for it to be a neutral state, right? So not necessarily 100% Western aligned, but somewhat Russian aligned or 50-50 or something like that. It's one thing for it to be a neutral state, which it's not going to be part of NATO. So in some senses it is, right? And you can concede on that, right? But it's a totally other thing to say, hey, disarm as I'm attacking you. You can't feed the logic of the opposite conclusion while you demand that they disarm. I mean, that makes no sense. If you're under attack, you can't just be like, well, now you disarm because then everything will be cool, I assure you. But you're literally attacking them right now. <laughs> like you're telling them to give up their effective right to self-defense. So I don't think there's going to be a resolution around that. Apparently, there are meetings. There is a meeting now between Russian officials and Ukrainian officials on the border with Belarus. Um, and there was a, there's going to be an emergency meeting of the United Nations. I don't know exactly when it is. It might be happening right now as I'm talking to you. But um, Russia and the UN Security Council members will not be able to use their veto power. This is, I think, the General Assembly at the United Nations. But the resolutions are going to be non-binding. So whatever, they come, whatever conclusion they come to, and I'm sure the conclusion that they're going to come to is, hey, Russia, this is bad. Don't do this. There's really you know, nothing that's enforceable on that front. So it's just uh, symbolic in a sense. So anyway, there you have it. Um, the billionaires expressing discontent is a good sign, but let's just say the the bad signs far outweigh the good signs. If there's like 712 bad signs about escalation and whatnot, the nuclear level being raised, so on and so forth, this is like really the tiniest silver lining in the world. But we'll take it and we'll see what happens moving forward. Okay, next. All of the former Bush administration ghouls 
uh, are coming out of the woodwork to condemn Putin for his aggressive invasion of Ukraine. And um, this has led to many moments which are just flat out astounding. It, it's unbelievable that some of these people are saying the things that they're saying. So here we have Condoleezza Rice on Fox News. And this back and forth is one of the most amazing things I've seen on TV. Take a look. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic basic point there. Well, um, I, I, it is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions mm-hmm. and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Really? Yeah. A Bush administration official saying war crimes are bad on live TV. Part of an administration that committed war crimes, a number of war crimes, She, by the way, was one of the leaders in pushing for the illegal and offensive invasion of Iraq. Now on TV, wagging her finger and saying, this is a wanton violation of international law and it's unacceptable. We obviously need to do all the the sanctions under the sun. Well, then the U.S. should have gotten all the sanctions under the sun put on us when we illegally and offensively invaded Iraq. First, they told us Saddam Hussein worked with Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. That turned out to be totally bogus. Then they told us he has weapons of mass destruction. That turned out not to be true. The implication also was he has weapons of mass destruction. He might use them any minute. That was also bogus. So all that stuff, not true, not true, not true, not true. And we ended up invading a country illegally, occupying it, killing 200,000 innocent civilians, ordered torture to cover it up. We had Abu Ghraib. We had Guantanamo Bay. No due process, no habeas corpus, rip up the Constitution, illegally spy on all Americans. I mean, crime after crime after crime after crime after crime. And she has the nerve to go on TV and say, well, this is a violation of international law. And I am a very well-known supporter of international law. Just to give you guys some background, and by the way, this is all like front and center in her Wikipedia page. This isn't even like you got to go to some some edgy leftist site in order to get this information. Condoleezza Rice was a proponent of the 2003 invasion of Iraq after Iraq delivered its Declaration of Weapons of Mass Destruction to the United Nations uh, on December 8, 2002. Rice wrote an editorial for the New York Times entitled, Why We Know Iraq is Lying. In a January 10, 2003 interview with CNN's Wolf Blitzer, Rice made headlines by stating regarding Iraqi President Saddam Hussein's nuclear capabilities, quote, The problem here is that there will always be some uncertainty about how quickly he can acquire nuclear weapons, but we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. So in other words, evidence? You want evidence? I can't give you evidence, but maybe the evidence will come as a mushroom cloud when he attacks New York City or Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or whatever. We can't wait for that evidence. We got to act now. We got to invade. We got to violate international law. We have to do it when it's about us. When it's Putin, no, 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 he doesn't have to do it and he shouldn't do it. In October 2003, Rice was named to run the Iraq Stabilization Group to, quote, quell violence in Iraq and Afghanistan and to speed the reconstruction of both countries. By May 2004, the Washington Post reported that the council had become virtually non-existent. So she was supposed to do this Iraq Stabilization Group, uh, and she didn't even do it. By the way, I wonder where the funds went for uh, that agency. Leading up to the 2004 presidential election, Rice became the first national security advisor to campaign for an incumbent president. She stated that while, quote, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with the actual attacks on America, Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a part of the Middle East 
that was festering and unstable and was part of the circumstances that created the problem on September 11th. So even though they didn't have anything to do with 9-11, I'm just going to say they still kind of had something to do with 9-11 because they're unstable and bad and it's a dictatorship, yada, yada, yada. We support 73% of the world's dictatorships. We used to support Saddam at the height of his atrocities against the Kurds. Shameless liars. Shameless liars. Now, understand something. I'm not doing this segment to feed into this notion of whataboutism, to deflect from what Putin is doing, because I'm clear, I'm on the record, what Vladimir Putin is doing is imperialism. It's aggression. There is no uh, scenario where only uh, NATO expansion explains what Putin is doing. If it's about NATO expansion, why the hell did Vladimir Putin just raise his security, nuclear security level, thereby effectively threatening innocent people all around the world? That's not just about NATO. In his own speech, he admits it's not just about NATO. It's not. In fact, but the parallels are striking between uh, one of the reasons for Putin's invasion of uh, Ukraine and Bush's invasion of Iraq. We just talked about this in a previous segment. Uh, why did the U.S. go into Iraq? Well, one of, them was, one of the reasons was imperial ambition. There was also geostrategic control of a vital region. We couldn't control Saddam anymore. Previously, we could. We couldn't anymore. He invaded Kuwait, so we thought he was a loose cannon. And oil. Well, why is Putin invading Ukraine? He admitted half of his speech was about imperial ambitions, wanting to reconstitute some semblance of the glory of the former Russian Empire. Uh, geostrategic control of what he views as a vital region. Ukraine used to be an ally, a buffer state with the West. So he says, look, geostrategic control, this is super important. And also, he can't control Zelensky and a more Western-aligned government. And also, natural gas, which is all over the Crimean Peninsula, in the eastern portion of Ukraine, and even in the western portion of Ukraine. And now, of course, we have the technology with fracking and stuff in order to get that out of the ground, and Putin wants that natural gas. So there are direct parallels here. So this isn't to do whataboutism about uh, what Putin is doing. It's to point out, you have no credibility. You have no credibility. You're the last person who can and should make this case, Condoleezza Rice. You should be behind bars, as should Dick Cheney, as should George W. Bush, Donald Rumsfeld. Well, he's dead now. But you should all be at The Hague, behind bars. You know, you shouldn't have a peaceful day for the rest of your life with the hell you unleashed on an innocent country, regardless of how bad Saddam was. So this is, and guys, this is such an important point. When we argue for the United States to abide by international law, it's not just because in principle it's the right thing to do, which it is. It's the moral thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. It's also because once you lay that precedent of we get to violate it whenever we want, other big and powerful states are going to say the same goddamn thing. So you set the precedent, the precedent it's okay to violate international law because we think we mean well. So Russia says, well, it's okay when we do it because we think we mean well. We, we're going to say it's purely defensive. We're going to give you our boatload of rationalization. And that's a problem. The law needs to be applied objectively. Justice is supposed to be blind. You can't willy-nilly violate it because, hey, we're the most powerful country on the block. Okay, well, because Russia can say, well, look, we're the most powerful country in this region. So might makes right. How do you like them apples? And we've seen it. We've seen, you know, Russia wagging their finger at Israel, for example, at the United Nations, saying, oh, are you guys going to lecture us about illegally occupying a territory? Is that what you're going to do? And it's like, well, how do you respond to that? The only honest response is, Israel shouldn't be illegally occupying Palestinian territory, 
And Russia shouldn't be illegally occupying uh, eastern Ukraine or any of Ukraine. And we're seeing this. We're seeing this time and time again. In, in Putin's speech, one of the claims he made, which was preposterous, but this, honestly, he was trolling the West when he said, hey, in theory, Kiev can get nuclear weapons and it can be delivered to Moscow in like seven minutes, dog. So we view this as a threat. He's using the weapons of mass destruction line to cover up an imperialist illegal invasion of Ukraine. The exact same line that the U.S. used to illegally invade Iraq. Again, none of this stuff means what Russia is doing is okay. It's the exact opposite. What Russia is doing is bad and wrong. But so was this stuff when the U.S. did it and does do it. And uh, we have no credibility because we don't abide by the values we proclaim to have. And there's something that's extra disgusting about the window dressing on acting like an imperialist. The window dressing is like, we're going to pretend like we're all about human rights and democracy and justice and freedom. And then we're going to functionally endorse the opposite. And it's grotesque. It's grotesque. You know, it's, it's more just almost, it's very naked on the Russian side of it, you know very clearly autocratic and dictatorial. There's not even the veneer. I guess the only veneer they're putting over it is pretending like it's purely defensive. It's the cry-bully stuff. But there is no veneer about, you know, democracy or human rights or whatever. It's just like, we were wronged, now we're going to take action. It's gross, man. It's just gross. Condoleezza Rice, sit this one out. George W. Bush, sit this. George W. Bush said something about the invasion. Shut up. Last person who should be able to talk about it, Dick Cheney. He, I haven't heard him say anything. Maybe he will, maybe he won't, but if he hasn't, maybe he's slightly more intelligent than Condoleezza Rice and George W. Bush. But the nodding in agreement as like, I think invading a sovereign country is a war crime. She's like, yes, that's what you did. That's what, that's what you're most known for. No self-awareness or just complete and utter liar. Okay, next. President Trump gave a CPAC speech. Now, we'll get to a very cringeworthy moment in, in a short amount of time. Um, but before we get to that, I want to show you, he comments on what's happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And um, he talks about Biden and, you know, how Biden's messing it up. Now, this is one of, I've now seen three clips total, including this one, of Trump talking about this issue. He was asked by some news network, it was either like Newsmax or One American News Network, one of those fringe right-wing outlets, you know, like, basically, what would you do differently? And his answer was, <laughs> what would I, he, he, he doesn't say. But, of course, he somehow strongly criticizes Biden without saying what he would do differently in any respect, okay? So, but this is an example of that from in his speech. Let's take a look. I have no doubt that President Putin made his decision to ruthlessly attack Ukraine only after watching the pathetic withdrawal from Afghanistan, where the military was taken out first, our soldiers were killed, and American hostages plus $85 billion worth of the finest equipment anywhere in the world were left behind. Yesterday, reporters asked me if I thought President Putin was smart. I said, of course he's smart, to which I was greeted with, oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. I'd like to tell the truth. Yes, he's smart. 
the NATO nations and indeed the world as he looks over what's happening strategically with no repercussions or threats whatsoever, they're not so smart. They're looking the opposite of smart. If you take over Ukraine, we're going to sanction you, they say. Sanction? Well, that's a pretty weak statement. Putin is saying, oh, they're going to sanction me. They sanctioned me for the last 25 years. You mean I can take over a whole country and they're going to sanction me? You mean they're not going to blow us to pieces, at least psychologically? The problem is not that Putin is smart, which of course he's smart, but the real problem is that our leaders are dumb. So, I mean, it's classic Trump. He talks for an extended period of time without saying anything of substance. In fact, in the other interview on this, he's like, well, you know, I would do something totally different, but I can't really talk about what I would do differently because I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to broadcast to them what I'd do differently. It was the same thing. Remember, he used to say this all the time about ISIS on Cambodia. I'm going to destroy ISIS, but I'm going to do it very quietly, and I'm not going to broadcast my plans because then they'll know it, and then, uh, you know, we have to make sure we keep it under wraps. So just trust me. It's like a just trust me argument. So wait a second. But you mock sanctions in there. You mock sanctions. Like, uh, what are you going to, they want to do sanctions? You're going to sanction Putin? Well, he's been sanctioned for decades. Like, what's that going to do? Okay, so uh, if you don't want to do sanctions, well, what do you want to do? What else do you want to do? And then he goes, blow them to pieces psychologically. What does that mean? <laughs> blow them to pieces psychologically? I'm really going to be stern in how I'm telling you this is wrong and bad. Look at my aggressive tone. Putin, stop it. It's like the video Tulsi Gabbard released after taking the opposite position for so long. Finally, when the winds were too overwhelming in the other direction, she'd be like, God, but Putin, stop it. You've made your point. You've made your point. What? This is what Trump said, mocking sanctions, not saying anything he'd do differently, but implying like we should blow them up psychologically. So what's your argument? Don't do any of the sanctions, but just be angrier in your comments against them, or do even stronger sanctions and be angrier in your tone against them, or do some sort of military action. What's your answer? What's your solution? He doesn't give one because he doesn't have one. He's just such, he's such an opportunist and a charlatan. It's so obvious. It's amazing to me that some people still don't see it, although to be fair, most people see it now. Um, and then his point early on, he talks about Putin made his decision to attack Ukraine after the Afghanistan withdrawal. Trump is the biggest flip-flopper on the planet because how many times did he say when he was president, we're going to get out of Afghanistan, it's so stupid, we shouldn't be there, it's terrible, it's wrong, it's bad, we need to rebuild America, why are we wasting our tax dollars over there? And all that stuff was based and true but he didn't have the balls to follow through with the withdrawal. He didn't have the balls to do it. He would posture like he was going to do it, and then ultimately he wouldn't do it, probably because some general would walk into the Oval Office and say, sir, this was a bad idea, and he'd be like, no, you're right. You're right. It's a bad idea. Let's not do that. He didn't have the balls to stand up to them. One of the best things Biden did was pull out of Afghanistan. Now, yeah, it was messy when you do it, because it turns out when you end like a 20-year war in occupation, it gets kind of messy. Who knew? But big picture here, it was the right thing to do. How long do you want to stay there? You want to stay there forever? Is that what you want to do? No, I would have withdrawn in a much more 
positive way, I would have withdrawn very, very strongly is what I would have done. And then it would have worked out because it was a very strong withdrawal, not a weak withdrawal. If he withdrew or Biden withdrew or anybody else withdrew, it was always going to be a mess when we left because the government was a total puppet government. It was fake. It was a paper tiger. And it went down like that. So that would have happened under anybody. So what do you want to do? Just stay there forever? Is that the idea? And this idea that Putin is looking at that and that's the reason why he's doing it, I don't buy that at all. I don't buy it at all. He's much more interested in the politics of the region and his sphere of influence and the actions of European countries and the actions of the post-Soviet states. Jesus Christ. I mean, he did it. He invaded. Look, all, this idea, oh, he wouldn't have done it under me, which is another thing I've heard uh, Trump saying. But he did do it under George W. Bush in 2008 in Georgia. And on paper, George W. Bush is very similar to Trump. You know, not the smartest guy in the world, psycho Republican war hawk. He did it then. He did it under Obama with Crimea. And he did it under Biden. If Trump got a second term, Putin still probably would have done it. And Lord only knows how Trump would have reacted. You know, that, that non-steady hand of leadership is terrifying because the fact of the matter is, remember how he, like, you know, threatened bombing North Korea I mean, could you imagine this in this instance, Trump's in office, he's still on Twitter, and he sends out a tweet where Trump threatens nuclear annihilation against Russia? Oh, oh my God, bro. Oh, my God. So, look, he doesn't have any answers, and he, he can't. I've seen this all over the place now. Just really ruthless criticism of Biden without saying at all what these people are in favor of. You should be super specific about what policy, policies you support. But it's just a game to these people. This isn't a game. This is life and death. And, you know, we've gone over it a thousand times on this show. I've given you guys my position. I want to do the strongest sanctions you could possibly do that do not hurt Russian civilians. I go to town on the oligarchs. I go to town on Putin. That sounded weirdly sexual. (laughs) I would do whatever I can to restrict their wealth and their power and unify the, the world against them. So, but I try my best to not do any sanctions that hurt Russian civilians. That's our only path forward, that plus some sort of negotiation and diplomacy and de-escalation, which at this time seems like a pipe dream, but it's necessary for the fate of humanity. That's what I would do. But they can't tell you. They can't tell you. And it really shows you they don't take this stuff seriously, and it's pathetic. All right, guys, let's continue. Let's continue here. Um, um, By the way, I forgot to mention, today's show is going to be a little bit shorter because i got to get to D.C. to prep for our uh, State of the Union live stream. Okay? So i got a few fewer stories today than I normally would, but that's because we did a whole bunch of stuff over the weekend, the breaking news segments. And uh, i got to get down to D.C. And hopefully I don't get blocked by some truckers. <laughs> we shall see. Okay. Trump gave a CPAC speech. Um, and, man, it got so awkward. I'm going to show you the clip in a second. I, wish, I really wish I covered this whole thing live. And, by the way, just so you know, we're doing a, um, a live, some live State of the Union coverage where it's going to be myself, Sagar, Crystal, Marshall, Uh, And it's going to be a lot of fun, so come check that out. And we're probably going to do an hour coverage before, play the entire State of the Union address, watch it live with you guys, and then do an hour of coverage 
after. So come join us. It'll be live streaming on, on this channel. I'm really looking forward to it. And we're probably going to start doing more, you know, live events like this, whether it's a debate night for presidential election or whatever. Um, I'm really excited for this stuff. It's a new thing that I'm interested in. So anyway, come check that out. I wish I covered the CPAC thing live, though, because it would have been hilarious. So Trump came out, classic Trump, giving a speech. He starts off the teleprompter. Eventually, he gets on the teleprompter. But in the portion where he's sort of riffing and he's off the teleprompter, he gave us one of the most awkward moments I've ever seen, even from Trump, and that's saying a lot. Take a look. A man that knows me almost better than any human being, he knows every inch of me. <laughs> and he thinks it's actually a very beautiful sight. That's why I like it. That's why I like it. He was the White House doctor. And also, for Obama and for Bush, and I'd love to ask him who's in the best shape. He knows every inch of me. He knows my head. He knows my toes. He knows my bowels. He knows my dick. He knows it all, folks. He's seen it all. He's touched it all. He's rubbed it all. He's played with it all. I've given him, I've given him all four inches. And let me tell you, he loves it. He says, sir, that is the largest four inches I've ever seen. Incredible stuff. It's a beautiful sight. He says, sir, why, do you, why are you so thick? Why do you have a donk, sir? Please, please, will you pose it for me, please? Oh, God. He knows every inch of me. He thinks it's a very beautiful sight. Bro, what? What? I love the last part, too, of, like, he's in the best shape. Or I'd like to ask him who's in the best shape. Dog, you come in third. <laughs> You, you are clearly in worse shape than both Obama and Bush. And that is like the least controversial thing anybody has ever said. You are a large man. Now, I'm not hating, but let's not pretend like, you know, you're in better shape than two guys who are pretty fit for their ages, you know? They both seem pretty fit for their ages. Bush doesn't really have much of a pot belly, and he's kind of up there in age. Obama's obviously healthy. And... He, by the way, Trump goes on to say, you know, uh, he talks about how I, he'd live to 200 years if he didn't eat so much junk food. I mean, I'm, look, uh, I think it is true that the other two are in better shape, but low-key, Trump is sort of right that he would live like 200 years if he didn't eat junk food. <laughs> There's something about him that you look at him like, he might live forever. Like, he's, he's got that vibe of like, you know, nothing's going to take him down. COVID almost took him down, by the way. I don't know if you, do you guys remember that story? When he had COVID, that we now learned that there was people on his staff behind the scenes were like, it was way worse than anybody realizes. He had trouble breathing. His blood oxygen level plummeted. When he recorded that video of him going to the hospital, he pretended like he was good. He was panicking. He famously said like, I hope I don't go out like Stan Chera. Stan Chera is a good friend of his who ended up dying from COVID. Or he said something like, am I going to go out like Stan Chera? 
So, but still, he, he gives those that weird vibe to me. But uh, man, this was. Uh, look, we're having fun here. We're joking around. It's a very tense time at the moment. Everybody's stress levels through the roof, myself included, given what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the tit for tat escalation. And you know, I've been nonstop with all the breaking news. I've been, I've had like not a moment to breathe. It's just been endless work for the main show plus you know, doing the breaking news segment. So we're all stressed out. I needed to, we needed to break that a little bit with this, with this segment. Um, and I don't want to hear a single goddamn word about like Trump was making this joke on purpose. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. This was like, this is classic Trump just sort of babbling. Doesn't even realize that it turned awkwardly sexual. He knows every inch of me, every inch of me, up close, personal, Alone, in the bedroom, lights off. It gets dirty, folks. It gets a dirty. It's a very beautiful sight. It's a very beautiful sight. It is not at all like a beached whale. It is not at all like a beached whale when I lay there. But even if it was, he'd say, Sir, you are the most beautiful beached whale anybody's ever seen. Tremendous beached whale. People are saying it's the best beach whale they've ever seen, that it's probably the best looking and, and by far and away the most strong and powerful and beautiful beached whale. Oh, man. I'd be lying to you guys if I said I didn't miss this aspect of Trump. Just how utterly hilarious he is without even trying. All right, let's continue, y'all. Joe Biden uh, made his Supreme Court pick, and I'm surprised, man. It's a shockingly decent Supreme Court pick. Now, not everything is not perfect, but it's honestly better than I would have expected and as good as I can imagine given the state of our rotten politics. So let me give you... Some information on her here. New York Times says, as a public defender, Supreme Court nominee helped clients others avoided. Ambitious lawyers usually become prosecutors. Katanji Brown-Jackson worked on behalf of criminal defendants and Guantanamo detainees. After the Supreme Court's landmark 2004 ruling that Guantanamo Bay prisoners could file lawsuits challenging their indefinite detention, the federal public defender in the District Court of Columbia took on several such cases, and assigned a young lawyer in his office to handle them. Katanji Brown-Jackson, quote, they involved very complex legal issues that were just being worked out, and it needed someone who was incredibly bright and, and an incredibly good lawyer, recalled the public defender, A.J. Kramer, quote, we thought Katanji was the best fit. Ms. Jackson, who went on to become a federal trial judge and then an appeals court judge, is now President Biden's Supreme Court nominee. But her two and a half years as an assistant public defender, including her work on behalf of accused terrorists, and of criminal defendants, is likely to receive particular uh, scrutiny under the glare of her coming confirmation fights. We're going to get to more on that in a second. Lawyers who harbor ambitions to be a judge, as she clearly did, having written in her high school yearbook that a judgeship was her goal, typically serve as prosecutors who help put criminals in prison. If confirmed, Judge Jackson, Jackson would be the modern court's first justice with experience as a public defender. She has also had to navigate the politics of having represented unpopular clients, at her confirmation to be a district court judge in 2012, for example, Senator Charles E. Grassley, Republican of Iowa, challenged her about Guantanamo's 
Guantanamo work, saying her record raised some concern about how you will handle terrorism cases that may come before you. Okay, so I should point out that for previous positions she was in, she was approved with even, I believe, three Republican votes. Uh, her resume in terms of, you know, how much experience she has is ironclad, ironclad. So let me read you some more. They go on in, in the New York Times piece. They say, Judge Jackson has deep roots in, in thinking about criminal law from multiple perspectives. One of her uncles was sentenced to life in prison on cocaine charges, but another was Miami's chief of police. A third uncle was a sex crimes detective. As an undergraduate at Harvard, she wrote a senior thesis in 1992 titled, The Hand of Oppression, Plea Bargaining Processes, and the Coercion of Criminal Defendants. That's a super important issue, and it happens all the time. You know, you coerce criminal defendants into pleading guilty when they're not guilty, and then they end up cutting plea deals with them and locking them up because they tell them if this thing thing goes to trial, you're going to go down even though you're innocent. She knows that problem. She wrote about that problem, and... Highly unlikely, I thought I'd ever see somebody that maybe gets on the Supreme Court who understands the nuances and the complexities and that important perspective. After graduating from Harvard Law School, clerking for several judges, including Justice Stephen Breyer, the man she would succeed, she also won an appeals court ruling overturning the conviction of a former lawyer who had been convicted of tax evasion related to taking a Mercedes-Benz 500 SL the mother of a drug-dealing client had given him as a retainer. The case turned on a complex dispute over the production of papers that the court ruled violated his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Um, so that, I told you not everything's perfect. She did, uh, you know, some characters who she defended were suspect at best. But there's a reason why she's in that field. Because there's an important point that authoritarians overlook. Due process matters massively. And you can't just give the state leeway, you know, whatever they say goes, you don't need any process in place. Because it's, it's, what's the old saying? It's much better to let one guilty person go, or to let 100 guilty people go, than have one innocent person locked up. And actually following the process and making sure the law is applied objectively and fairly, and representing people who might be um, otherwise contemptuous, it's one of the most amazing parts of having a criminal justice system that truly is fair. Like, even the worst of the worst get their day in court. And that's the way it should be. Now, unfortunately, it hasn't been like that for a while. And for a long time at Guantanamo, that was, it's like, look, no due process, no habeas corpus. We're just going to lock you up and throw away the key. And the argument is, these aren't citizens. They don't, the Constitution doesn't apply to them. They're enemy combatants. And so none of the rules apply. And uh, Katanji... Brown Jackson, or Jackson Brown, excuse me, I'm fucking up her name here, which is a shame, but she, she definitely does not believe that. And she 100% is in the right on that issue, uh, on the proper side of that issue. Um, by the way, another thing she was involved in is reducing sentences for drug crimes. So she was very critical of, remember the disparity when it came to crack cocaine versus cocaine? And it really is just totally racially motivated, black people by and large, did crack and white people by and large did cocaine. And so you get way more time for crack cocaine than cocaine. She was involved in reducing sentences for drug crimes. Um, Now to go back to what they're going to hit her with, of course, they're going to hit her with like you defended terrorists. Look guys, I don't know the specific cases of the specific people that she defended, but the fact of the matter is, and you know this, if you've watched this show for a long time, the overwhelming majority of the people who were locked up at Guantanamo Bay were totally innocent. 
What happened was the Bush administration cut a deal with warlords in Afghanistan and Pakistan and told them, hey, guys, we just got hit on 9-11 here. You've got to send us terrorists if you know where they are. And so you had the government of Pakistan just like – and warlords just round up people who were their political enemies and ship them to the U.S., and they were locked up in Guantanamo with no due process whatsoever. And so it turns out warlords in Pakistan are not the most trustworthy people. And it came out over time that most of the people we were locking up at Guantanamo didn't do anything wrong. Weren't affiliated with al-Qaeda or jihadism, didn't attack us on 9-11. And we know the story of a whole bunch of them. I mean, we covered the story of Marat Karnaz very famously a long time ago. Marat Karnaz is a German citizen who was shipped to Guantanamo. And eventually Germany had to intervene and say, look, this guy's not a terrorist. You've got to let him go. He was a German citizen who was like in Pakistan or Afghanistan. He was rounded up. And so this is why due process matters. This is why it's so important. Because you can't just trust the government to say, I think this person's guilty, so you've got to lock them up. It's like, no, there needs to be a process where evidence is presented and all the facts are out there, and you can make a reasonable decision based on that. And so for her to be a criminal, you know, a criminal defendant or criminal, why am I blanking on this word? <laughs> for her to defend criminals and for her to defend accused terrorists, uh, it shows that she believes in that system, and she believes in accountability, and she believes in justice. And look, if at the end of the day these people are guilty and they get locked up, sure, it is what it is, but everyone needs to have, have their day in court. And my guess is a lot of the people she defended actually didn't do anything wrong. And so she, she played a very pivotal and important role. So massive, massive uh, credit here to Biden, surprisingly, for picking the least bad option. So there was another option that was on the table that was being pushed by James Clyburn, who was just a rank corporate, corporatist who is exactly what the Republicans would have wanted. And in fact, some Republicans did come out and argue for Clyburn's pick. But Biden did not go in that direction. So people are going to make a, you know, a big stink about, well, look, it's historic since the first black woman on the court, which is great. But the more important point is her record. The more important point is her judicial philosophy. And it seems to me that she's going to um, adjudicate in a way that is much more in alignment with my philosophy and my values than, you know, any of the other potential options would have done. Okay. All right, next. So Fox News has done a complete 180. Um, you know, previously Tucker was very aggressively making the case um, that Vladimir Putin is a, is a victim and everything that's going on with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, he went, look, he, he even went above and beyond the standard leftist position, which is about NATO expansion and how that's a threat to Russia. And, you know, he got to the point where he saw, even after Putin's speech, where half of the speech was about Putin's imperial ambition, basically saying Ukraine is a fake state and we kind of own it and should have it back. Even after that, Tucker was still sort of going with the line of, um, there's nothing else to this other than uh, Putin being defensive. And that's misleading. That's not true. You've got to look at all the evidence. You've got to look at um, all the facts and make a determination about what really goes into this conflict. And ever since then now, there's been – I have whiplash from the, the flip-flopping that Fox is doing. So now they've gone so hard in the other direction that they're being hawkish and dangerous. So Tucker himself now came out and, and 
is try, starting to make the opposite case because it's too obvious that we're looking at aggression here. Uh, and there's other Fox segments that are terrifying. So here's Judith Miller, and I'll tell you more about Judith Miller in a second. In a second. She went on Fox News and she said this. The results of what he's done has been the exact opposite of what he's wanted to happen. So he's, yes, he's got to be furious. Uh, I know earlier today, Admiral Stavridis said perhaps there was a, quote, Julius Caesar solution. Uh, that is, maybe someone in his immediate entourage would kill him. But we've had, uh, Biden is now the fifth American president who has stared into Putin's eyes and has come across, uh, come out with uh, various impressions. Uh, Putin uh, was, according to uh, Joe Biden, someone who had no soul. I think we ought to stop looking at his eyes and just permanently close them. Yeah, you know, Putin supposedly answered. I don't think that's the right thing to say at this very delicate moment when we are on higher nuclear alert. Putin is on higher nuclear alert, and he threatened the West in no uncertain terms and said, if anybody gets involved, uh, you're going to have consequences the likes of which you've never experienced in your history. Now is the time to be as on point and focused and reasonable as possible. Now, look, the part where she's talking about, hey, maybe somebody inside Putin's inner circle has had enough and they'll off him. That's a reasonable conversation to have. That might happen. We know the billionaires, the oligarchs behind the scenes are sort of pissed off about what's going on. So there's a, you know, there's a splinter within. So that is not something that I'm upset about. But the part that is crazy is the last part. You know, we should stop looking into his eyes and permanently close his eyes. He has nuclear weapons. He has nuclear weapons. This isn't like you can't just, like, send in SEAL Team 6 and, and take care. If there's an oopsie, well, then it's a wrap on humanity. And Judith Miller, I told you I would give you more on Judith Miller. She was a so-called journalist for the New York Times, rank propagandist. She was critical in building the case for the Iraq war. She was the one who acted as a stenographer to the intelligence agencies in the deep state who were wrong at best, lying at worst, talking about, oh, Saddam's a threat, he has weapons of mass destruction, the implication is he's going to use them on us. She took that message and brought it to an otherwise skeptical, liberal-leaning New York Times audience. And so she helped build the consensus to get us into an illegal and offensive war. Now, understand something. What Putin is doing here is aggression, it's imperialism. I think all the facts sort of dictate it's not just about NATO expansion. Um, but now is not the time to be talking about assassinations and killings because, you know, God forbid, man, the more he feels under threat from the West, the more he's going to react erratically. And he's already been acting erratically. We don't want further erratic action. What I support, as I've told you guys a thousand times, is sanction the oligarchs to the high heavens, sanction Putin himself to the high heavens. I would do whatever sanctions I can. Oh, one of the best ones is seizing all the offshore bank accounts of the oligarchs and of Putin. That's one of the best things you could do. Uh, it directly targets them, and there's really no negative side effects for the uh, Russian population. So I do every sanction I can that's not hurting the Russian population. That's an intelligent response. That plus negotiation, diplomacy, 
arming Ukraine, as long as it's not the Azov Battalion who are neo-Nazis. So that's how you handle this. This idea that you casually talk about assassinating him, it's just, it's such dangerous talk, and they're oblivious to it. Like, do you not understand the level of danger that we're currently under? Do you not understand how serious a situation this is? How delicate uh, a geopolitical crisis this is? And she doesn't, because she's an idiot. Or she does know, and she doesn't care, because she's got a death wish or something. I don't know. But either way, this talk is crazy, man. And we've had other people go on Fox News, and Adam Kinzinger said this as well, talking about, well, obviously what we need to do is a no-fly zone over Ukraine enforced by the U.S. So you want U.S. weapons to shoot down Russian planes over Ukraine, direct military conflict between two nuclear-armed powers. How do you think that's going to end? That literally is an act of World War III. And they say it casually as if it's like, you know, a limited thing that there's no response. Guys, I don't know how, much, uh, how I can stress this more than I am, but nothing happens in a vacuum. Every action you take will have a reaction. So that's why it's important you deter without escalating. Casually floating assassination as if it's easy or as if it's, you know, there aren't colossal downsides to fucking it up or there aren't colossal downsides to succeeding. Like, I don't know how else to get through to people that you need to take this seriously. This isn't, like, you're not talking about, you know, overthrowing some tin pot dictator who is otherwise powerless, that you're not talking about that right now. And even in that situation, it's still not the conversation to have because, you know, the idea is when we commit crimes, it's okay. When we do illegal actions, it's okay. International law doesn't apply to us because we're the, you know, the policemen and the serious people. And it's like, no, our history shows that is not the case. You don't want us playing that role. We're not holier than thou. We don't abide by human rights and democracy and freedom and justice, et cetera. But there it is. I mean, the last kind of talk we should be having at a moment like this. Seriously. We should permanently close his eyes. Again, she didn't say early on she talked about maybe somebody from within his own inner circle might off him. That's a fair conversation to have. Maybe have it. I don't know. No, she says we should permanently close his eyes. Uh, what I fear is the entire political establishment Republican politicians, Democratic politicians, and the entire corporate media over and over and over and over and over again telling Biden, you're being too weak, you're being too soft. I mean, they're unleashing almost every sanction under the sun, man. They really are. And some of the sanctions go too far and will hurt Russian civilians. What I fear is pushing him and pushing him and pushing him and putting him under colossal pressure to the point where maybe he does try something really stupid that we can't reverse and we can't turn back from. That leads to a worst-case scenario. Look, I know some people out there are skeptical of the World War III talk, right? Like, I, I get it. I get it. But you have a false sense of security, man. You really do. This end-of-history idea, this end-of-history analysis, like, we're done with, the, you know, stuff like World Wars. That was crazy. We all learned that lesson. All the evidence is pointing to the conclusion that it absolutely is possible to happen again, and it'll be worse this time because it's the nuclear age. So don't have that false sense of security. I'm reminded of, I know it's a weird comparison to make, but I'm reminded of people's false sense of security that Hillary would 100% win, and there's no doubt about it. I'm reminded of that right now. And then Trump won, everybody's like, shit, I didn't even, even know that was a possibility. So maybe be a little more humble, you know? Maybe be a little more humble in the face of this conflict and this crisis. And don't just like rah-rah and, and do jingoism and get ultra-nationalistic and have an overreaction. That's not to say what Putin's doing isn't bad and aggressive and imperialistic. It is bad. But 
this sort of talk, man, look, it's neoconservative, hawkish, imperialism, bloodthirsty garbage that is not going to lead to any sort of a solution, not going to lead to de-escalation, and it puts everybody in danger. And by the way, let me end this segment with an equally important fact here. Um, hopefully I can find it here in my DMs. Give me one second. Um, it is not like you're not seeing the same sort of thing on Russian TV. So on Russian state TV, quote, our submarines alone can launch more than 500 nuclear warheads, which guarantees the destruction of the U.S. and NATO for good measure. The principle is, why do we need the world if Russia won't be in it? So the ultranationalists on Russian TV are all in. And they're like, look, we'll take, we'll take this whole bitch down, man. That's what we'll do. We'll destroy the whole goddamn thing. Everybody needs to chill, and everybody needs to reel it in, and everybody needs to be careful and intelligent because the hawks get control of the narrative on both sides, and there's no pushback. Oof, I, I shudder at the consequences of that, man. I really do. You almost can't imagine how bad it could get. So I have nothing but condemnation and scorn for the ultra hawks on Russian TV cheering on an imperialist invasion and threatening nuclear warheads and uh, the massive hawks on, in the media here in the U.S. who casually float the idea of uh, assassinating Putin in the middle of this crisis when he's already acting erratically and they're further fueling more erratic action. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. Mitt Romney absolutely unloaded on Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, what happened was Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I think Paul Gosar as well, although I'm not sure if he was at this particular conference, uh, they went to uh, this far-right conference. I think it's called the America First Political Action Conference, something like that. It's supposed to be the further right version of CPAC. And the guy who runs it and was like one of the big speakers is Nick Fuentes, who's, you know, well-known far-right troll in Internet circles. Um, but Marjorie Taylor Greene went and spoke of this. I'm going to tell you more about Nick Fuentes in a second. But Romney was asked about this when he was on CNN. And uh, this is probably some of the harshest criticism I've seen from one elected Republican against another elected Republican. Take a look. And I also saw uh, that uh, the Ronald McDaniel came out with a statement as well, uh, uh, talking about how repugnant these white nationalists are. Look, there's no place in, in either political party uh, for this white nationalism or racism. It's simply wrong. Uh, it's, it's, uh, as, as you've indicated, speaking of evil, uh, it's evil as well. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, I don't know them, but I'm reminded of that old line from the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid movie where, where one character says, morons, I've got morons on my team. And I have to think anybody that would sit down with white nationalists and speak at their conference was certainly missing a few IQ points. Damn. Now, he's talking about white nationalism there. Understand, he's not, he's not being even a little bit hyperbolic. This guy, Nick Fuentes, like open white nationalist. Um, he said a number of things which are 
complementary of Hitler, you know, barely trying to put any veneer whatsoever under like flat out Nazi ideology. And you could find a, a thousand clips of him, you know, openly saying, look, we're, uh, we're racist, we're anti-Semitic, we're misogynists, and, um, you know, this is our ideology, and this is what we believe, and, and we act in accordance with that. There was a video that went viral not too long ago where his own followers were calling him a fake cell because he uh, claimed to be an incel, but he also admitted he kissed a girl once, like, nine years ago or something, and he was trying to defend his incel status. And, um, you know, in the process of that, he's like, I'm, hey, look, I'm not really, I am a real incel. I'm not concerned about any of that other stuff, personal life, garbage, girlfriends, holding hands, kissing, hugging. All I want is total Aryan victory, total Aryan victory. That's what he said. So, look, you don't take my word for it. Don't take Romney's word for it. You go see for yourself. This is who Nick Fuentes is. Like, this is who he is. He's just like a far-right troll, uh, open white nationalist. And Marjorie Taylor Greene went to go speak at the conference. And um, she's now even on the defensive over that. So she's, you know, she basically, look, I didn't know. I, I, I guess the conference is called America First Something Something. She thought, I, got, I want to go talk to young people who believe in America First. And she's trying to cover her tracks here. But a lot of people from within the GOP are dropping the hammer. Mitt Romney did it. Liz Cheney did it. Now, granted, those people are not in the highest standing within the Republican ranks because Trump still dominates the Republican ranks. And they're not on the best terms with Trump. But even Mike Pompeo came out and was like, uh, you don't play footsies with these people. And look, the fact of the matter is, what they don't like is that there's no, there's no politics here. There's no um, taking off the hard edges. Now, I'm not saying Mitt Romney's a Nazi. I'm not saying Liz Cheney's a Nazi. I'm not saying, uh, you know, Pompeo's certainly a war criminal. <laughs> Lie, cheat, stole, was with the CIA, et cetera. Uh, Liz Cheney, bloodthirsty in favor of every single war. But they're not Nazis. And what they don't like is, you're now, like, you don't want the extremes to take over the entire party because then we don't even have the plausible deniability anymore. Like, when Romney gets involved in racial politics, he goes out there and says stuff like, the 47% are takers, and I want to represent the makers. And the idea is, like, 47% of the country, and in his mind, he thinks, like, they're all Democrats. Like, these Democrats, they don't want to work for a living. They just want to get stuff for free. And in his mind, that includes a lot of minorities. And so when he gets involved in racial politics, he says grotesque things like that. But there's the veneer over it where if somebody brings up race, he can be like, I wasn't even talking about race. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just talking about it's Democrats are really the takers, and I, I, I believe in the makers. And so when you have the extreme infiltrating, taking over the Republican Party, and they're sort of openly white nationalist and openly sympathetic to Nazi ideology, that I think Romney knows how unappealing that is to normie Americans how regular people will just scoff at that and, and turn around in, in disgust. And it's, uh, in a sense, it's sort of self-disenfranchisement from the likes of Paul Gosar and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so Romney, I think, is concerned about the Republican brand. Now, look, I'm not concerned about the Republican brand at all, but he's still correct in criticizing them because that, that extreme is, uh, is a growing threat. You know, I don't think the U.S. is on the verge of becoming Nazis. Uh, we're not going to embrace Nazism in this country, but um, it's still concerning that you have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who are genuinely a lot more popular than um, non-white nationalist-aligned uh, Republican politicians. I mean, it goes back to the – it's funny because when you go back to the feud between um, – oh, what's his name? Dan Crenshaw 
and he was feuding with, like, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and stuff. He's just jealous. Like, he's just jealous because Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates actually have people who genuinely like them. They're fringe. They're extreme. It's, it's the base. It's the far right. You know, it's the more Trump-aligned types. But Dan Crenshaw's jealous. And on the one hand, it's like, it makes me dislike Dan Crenshaw more <laughs> because it's like, you don't even really believe in anything and you're just jealous of the attention. But on the other hand, it's also like, the last thing anybody should want is for the super far right, the open white nationalists, to get, like, total control of the party. I mean, that's just... And unfortunately, during times of political instability, what you see is a rise of the quote-unquote extremes. Now, of course, I'm of the opinion that the so-called left extreme is not extreme at all. The so-called far left in electoral politics in America are social democrats, Scandinavian-style social democrats. So I don't think there's an equivalent between the far left and the far right, but you do see an increase in the support for these so-called extremist factions. On the right, they're genuinely extreme. Um during uh, times of discontent, and we're in a time of discontent, so you see, like, the Romney types, the Crenshaw types, like, struggling to, you know, cobble together a coalition that keeps the more moderate faction in control of the party. But this is, like, a very ruthless condemnation, the likes of which I'm not sure I've seen any Republican give to anybody else, except maybe Trump when he's trying to throw some other Republicans under the bus for crossing him. But, look, on this front, it's hard to disagree with him, because... It's not like Marjorie Taylor Greene was going in front of a conference of white nationalists to be like, white nationalism is wrong, to bring like a more moderate message to it. She's going in front of them to be like, yeah, I'm sort of with you guys. So pretty crazy, pretty gross to see an elected politician who's got a lot of popularity on that far right base um, flirting with and going even further right to open white nationalism and people who are sympathetic to Nazis. All right, I'm going to do two more, and then we're done, bro, because i got to take off to D.C. So the, um, there's now a, a U.S. trucker protest trying to copy the Canadian one, which, by the way, was just snuffed out by Trudeau and the government, honestly using pretty authoritarian tactics, freezing bank accounts, so on and so forth. Um, now... By the time you're watching this clip on YouTube, by the time it drops, I'm, hopefully I'm already in D.C. because we're doing a, a live stream event for the State of the Union. Everybody come check that out, by the way. Really looking forward to it, really excited for it. Um, myself, Crystal, Sager, Marshall, going to do an hour before the State of the Union, an hour after the State of the Union. Um, but let's hope I get there. Let's hope I get there. I, I probably will, but we'll, we'll see if I hit traffic or whatever because a bunch of U.S. truckers are going to try to shut down Washington, D.C. Now... Um, we have some of their demands here that I want to show you because this is really something. So you can see Mac, good politic guy, tweets, we should be doing this, but for Medicare for all, $20 minimum wages, or literally anything that would materially improve people's lives. So some of the issues D.C. truckers are protesting for, or protesting about, I should say. High gas prices, vaccine mandates, critical race theory, and the January 6th arrest. This is hilarious to me. It's hilarious. Of all the issues to do a protest about, to take to the streets about, to do some sort of blockade for, these are the things they're picking. And by the way, that list has some of the issues they're protesting for. I would love to see the entire list. Let's go through them. High gas prices. 
Why do we have high gas prices? Well, the main reason is that Saudi Arabia is not getting along with Biden, and so they're trying to squeeze out Biden and the Democrats, and so they are purposefully jacking up gas prices. I mean, the other reason now it's going to be another increase is because of what's happening with Russia. So if you really are concerned about this issue, it's not like the idea that you're protesting Biden over it. I mean, I'm sure he wants gas prices to be a hell of a lot lower, but he's kind of limited in what he could do, given the fact that, unfortunately, we're so reliant on Saudi Arabia. Now, we do do a lot of, we do have a lot of natural gas here, but unfortunately, the way everything's structured is they sell a lot of that overseas. So, you know, we buy from overseas and then we send our stuff overseas. It's kind of a cockamamie system. But the idea that you protest over that is like, okay, that's weird. Um, Vaccine mandates. Guys, you won. There isn't a vaccine mandate. You're going to protest in D.C., so that means you're protesting the federal government. There is no federal government vaccine mandate. Uh, Even when Biden was calling for his most aggressive measure, it was a vaccinate or test policy, and that was struck down by the Supreme Court. So there is no vaccine mandate. You won. Now, if you're saying, hey, these peop- where people work at certain places of business, they're doing vaccine mandates. Yeah, to some places, of course, true. Go protest those corporations. Go talk to those businesses. It's those businesses who are doing it. So, I mean, think about how backwards this is. They're literally protesting for something they already won on. So why are you protesting? That makes no sense. That's like if we got a $15 minimum wage implemented, and then a month later, we all go protest for a $15 minimum wage. Everybody be like, are you guys slow? Like, what are you doing? Are, are you incapable of, like, understanding the way the world works? Are you incapable of basic perception abilities? Like, this makes absolutely no sense. Vaccine mandate. Congratulations. You guys won. I don't know what else you want me to tell you. Certain states might have them, whatever. Go protest the state. Certain corporations, go protest the corporation. Unbelievable. Critical race theory. I... Okay, there's a number of things to say in response to this, but probably the most important one is, I thought you guys were the free speech people. I thought you talked about free speech all the time. Look, you got to let people say whatever they want to say, even if it's offensive, even if it's over the top, even if it goes too far. Free speech is vitally important. You can't shut it down. But now when it comes to critical race theory, they're like, we need to ban anybody talking about this in schools. Now, understand, they're not saying, hey, this is misleading, and that's why we don't like it. They're not saying that. Because what they believe in is, I think, what Trump called the 1776 Project, which is like, let's teach right American propaganda to our school students. And the idea is, effectively, only talk about the good things we did and play them up and downplay any of the bad things or just omit them completely, and that's the way we're going to teach our kids. Okay, so in other words, you're saying, let's lie. Let's be ultra-nationalists who hide the truth because we care more about our feelings than the facts. That's their take. So these are feelings over facts people. But they're pretending with, oh, get rid of critical race theory, that they're facts over feelings, people. The reason I don't want critical race theory is because it's not true and it hurts our kids. But now let's teach them this other stuff that's not true and propagandize them into being American exceptionalists. What's another word for exceptional? Supreme. American supremacists. Come on, man. Look, in, a, in, a, in an education setting, yes, you want to stick to facts and information, right? But there are so many things where not everything is black and white. Not everything is cut and dry. There are massive uh, areas of gray. So you want to teach all of it. Teach the gray area. There are aspects of critical race theory I'd probably disagree with, but then there's aspects that I'd probably agree with. They just want to ban the entire talk of it. 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's so silly. This is on their list of things to protest for. And then we have January 6th arrest. What's your claim? What's your claim? Release everybody who was involved with January 6th. I hate to break it to you. Some people broke laws. Break the law, you're going to go to prison. If you're like breaking a window in the Capitol or storming in while armed, there's going to be consequences for that. You want to free all of them? Now, again, hilarious irony. These are the law and order people. It was a law and order, law and order, law and order. Unless we break it, in which case, please let us go. You have to release us. This is not fair. I don't like it. <laughs> oh, man. So, listen, I'll say the same thing about this that I said about the uh, Canadian truckers. The Canadian truckers were protesting the vaccine mandate, the vaccine passport. And I think they dropped the passport. The mandate is still in place. You guys know my take on the vaccine mandate. I'm not in favor of a hard mandate. I like a vaccinator test approach. If you don't want to get it, fine, but you got to take a test. Okay, that's my approach to that. So I didn't really agree with the substance of that trucker protest. Neither did the Teamsters Union, which is the number one union representing truckers there. 90% of the truckers were vaccinated, so about 90% of the truckers didn't agree with the protest. Um, But I supported their right to protest. And I don't like the authoritarian crackdown on them protesting because of the precedent that lays and how they're going to go after the left using the same tactics. That was my position on that. I have the same position on this. In fact, I think this protest is actually much goofier than the Canadian one because they're just putting together a, you know, a, a buffet of right-wing grievance politics issues, culture war claptrap. So uh, I don't agree with them, but look, as, as long as they're not breaking any laws and it's just a peaceful protest, you got to let them do what they're going to do. Hopefully I don't get stuck in traffic for 17 hours, though, trying to get down to D.C. We shall see. Okay, next. Final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. Texas is taking some pretty extreme action in regards to trans kids here. Let me go ahead and show you. Um, So there's a letter there on the left from Governor Greg Abbott. You can see here on the right, Aaron says, Greg Abbott has officially directed Family and Protective Services to begin investigating all trans children in Texas and prosecuting their parents as child abusers. He has also instructed all teachers, doctors, and caregivers to begin reporting any trans students they see. So here's what happens if you're a child abuser. They take your kids away from you. They just take your kids. Put them in CPS, Child Protective Services. So really, this is Greg Abbott taking children away from their parents. Now, look, you guys tell me you're the family values people. That seems like you're breaking up families. You guys tell me you're against big government. This is the biggest government I can imagine. You guys tell me you're against authoritarianism. This is as authoritarian as it gets. This strikes me as going way too far. Now, look, when I think about this issue, it it, it reminds me of the gay rights debate that happened not too long ago. And in the gay rights debate, everybody sort of got to this position where, look, you're born that way if you're gay. Now, I don't know if it's born that way or you have formative experiences during your formative years that sort of set your roadmap and then it's set in stone and sort of concrete. I don't know if it's, that or the born that way thing, but either way, the inevitable conclusion is it's not changeable. We know that gay conversion therapy is a ruse. It doesn't work. You can't just like 
wishful think your way or therapy your way out of feeling the way you feel in that regard. It just doesn't make sense. Now, if you don't believe me, whatever your sexual proclivities are, try to imagine you going to therapy to try to get rid of that proclivity and flip it to, to another one and how successful you think that would be. It wouldn't work, right? It, it's just like it's fruitless. It makes no sense. Like it's just a waste, waste of time. You're not going to be able to de-gay somebody. It's just not going to happen. Now, by the same token, I imagine that it's a similar thing for trans kids, for trans people. So, like, this is just what they feel. It's who they are. Um, they know it as much as they know anything about themselves. And so you're not just going to be able to, you know, finger wag at it and change it or make people go through therapy and change it or take draconian authoritarian actions to the government and change it. So what are we doing here? I mean, this is like textbook oppression in a sense. Now, understand something. I don't want to gloss over complexities or nuance in this conversation. I really don't because I'm not an expert on this stuff. And I don't know nearly enough about this stuff. But what I do know is something viscerally feels wrong with the approach that Texas is taking. You know, um, I'd love to have conversations with trans people who can tell me from their perspective what it's like. I remember a long time ago, um, somebody reached out, probably 2013, something like that, 2014, when I was doing the show. I have a, had a trans viewer who contacted me, and they basically just sort of told me the basics told me, like, look, I was miserable. I knew I was in the wrong body. And then as soon as I started getting my hormone treatment and, and you know, taking the roadmap to change, I immediately got better. It's like, okay. Now, you could say, hey, that's anecdotal. That's one story. Fair enough. But, you know, um, you need to have a conversation with a lot of trans people or you'd have to do some sort of giant empirical study on it to see um, what the best path is. But even, even if the conclusion of the data is the opposite, you got to still believe in uh, – freedom and free choice and people to make their own minds up and to um, do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And that's not hurting anybody else. So that really opened my eyes uh, on the issue of trans rights. And I'm a supporter of trans rights. I think we should add um, transgender people to non-discrimination clauses across the country because there's still over 20 states where you can get fired for being trans. They just fire you. I'm not comfortable with you being trans. You're going to get fired because you're trans. And that's perfectly legal in over 20 states. So that's unacceptable. Federally, they should be added to uh, non-discrimination protections. So again, I don't want to gloss over the complexities. I do think there is a different conversation to be had about children in particular. Um, is there some, should there be some rule about to actually transition and, and do the surgery, you need to be this age? Maybe. I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But certainly what Greg Abbott is doing here goes way too far, in my opinion. Um, this is authoritarian. This is draconian. This is primitive. This is the biggest government I can imagine. This is anti-family values. And I think, look, the, the stereotype that they've built in their mind is that, like, all trans kids are being abused by weird parents who are forcing them into being trans. That is a claim that you would need a colossal amount of evidence for. That's what that is. That's a claim that you need to look and and go case by case and situation by situation and determine what actually is going on here. Are there maybe some fringe cases where that happens? Sure, could be. Could be. But is that going to be the majority of the cases or all of the cases of trans kids? I tend to doubt it, man. I tend to doubt it. Again, you want to have a conversation about taking the most extreme steps like uh, the, the surgery, that maybe there should be some 
legal line where it's, it's accepted and not in the same way that we have rules around almost everything when it comes to what age it's acceptable and not. I'm open to that conversation, but I'm not an expert. I genuinely don't think my opinion would add much to that conversation. It should all be around, you know, what the evidence says, what the data says, what trans people say, what, uh, you know, medical community says, psychologists, psychiatrists, experts, so on and so forth. I certainly don't want to leave any of this up to Greg Abbott, and I certainly don't want him to start taking kids because that seems uh, really extreme, really wrong, and the whole policy is based off of imagining that stereotype is 100% valid, the stereotype of, like, all trans kids are bullied into that from weird parents. And, again, that requires evidence. And uh, to default to that position and base policy around that position is really just, a, you know, an indication of a bigoted way of thinking, which is what he's engaging in. So let's hope they reverse this policy. Um, and let's hope other states don't follow the lead because this can get real bad. It already is. All right. We are done, y'all. We are done. I love y'all. Everybody have a great rest of the day. Don't forget to tune in. Tune in to the live stream of the State of the Union that Secular Talk and Breaking Points are doing. We'll be streaming tomorrow at 8, and uh, it'll be a whole bunch of fun. So love you guys, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Peace. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.